This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. We're starting a new book of the Bible today, and we're in the first part of the Bible called the Old Testament. Pastor Pierre Rosa is beginning his preaching through the book of Esther. The story of Esther is filled with drama, but it's also filled with hope for believers who will be reminded that God is sovereign, meaning nothing escapes his control and will. God's name isn't even mentioned in Esther, but we'll see from the very beginning that he is at work in the affairs of man and the affairs of state to accomplish his purposes and prove his faithfulness. Today's message will be filled with context and detail to help set the stage for the rest of the main storyline, but even in the first nine verses, we'll learn much about our great God. So let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Before we get to the text, let me give you some foundational elements of the story here, details for us to know. I'm going to give you the setting, the plot, the chronology, or the timeline, and the theme of the book. Okay, so the setting, the historical setting here, is that Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, inherited by conquest the captive Jews that Nebuchadnezzar brought to Babylon. The book of Daniel, chapter 5, tells us when that change of kingdom took place, The Medo-Persians came and conquered Babylon, and therefore this guy Cyrus inherited the people, and he told them, according to Ezra 1, verses 1 through 5, you're allowed to go back. But many of them decided to stay, even though they had permission to go back to the land and rebuild. And they were fully assimilated into that pagan culture. In their minds, God limited his presence to Jerusalem. But as contemporaries of the main character of the book, a Cinderella-like orphan girl, They experienced divine providence in the midst of anti-Semitism, comparable only to what we have seen in the Second World War, the Holocaust. So this is a rag-to-riches story here, where a heroine rises to the occasion to become God's agent of temporal salvation for those who don't deserve it, because they have abandoned God. They didn't want to go back. They said, well, what's the point? The world here is our home. So they have abandoned all confidence in God, and therefore God is showing faithfulness to them, even though they're not showing faithfulness to God. Let me talk to you about the plot. Like the book of Ruth, Esther features a U-shaped storyline, also known as a comic plot. It doesn't mean the story is funny. Of course it's not. It means exactly what I said earlier, that this heroine goes down into conflict. She descends into danger, but now rises up. To the occasion. So that's the U-shaped plot type there, centered on the dilemma of Esther. Now, unlike Ruth, that I call the Moabite heroine, Esther, she participates in sexual immorality. And she does that at the instruction of a father figure, which is one of the reasons people early on in history try to exclude this book from the canon of Scripture. And by the way, some portions of this book will raise our eyebrows. And the other thing too, we're going to butcher names. So just let's get that out of the way. When we read all of these Persian names, we're going to butcher all all of them. But the point is, there's no point in trying to sanitize the story just to fit our own expectations. If we take the book at face value, God exposes the sinfulness of his people, yes, 
And God blessed Esther and Mordecai, not because of their sin, but in spite of their sin, which is what he continues to do today. He blesses you and me, obviously not because of our sinfulness, not because of our bad decisions, but in spite of them, because he's gracious. And he uses flawed human beings as heroes of history here in order to accomplish his purposes. Like the writer of Song of Solomon, the author here never mentions the name of God. He mentions fasting, but not prayer. Again, this is another reason why people didn't think Esther should be in the Bible. He also omits the Mosaic law and the temple in Jerusalem. But rather than suggest divine apathy, these omissions encourage the reader to see the Lord working non-miraculously, graciously, providentially, and sovereignly, even in the lives of those who thought that God died with the exile of his people. The chronology here, or the, the timeline of the, the story here, is important for us to know. The events happened between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. Now, in Ezra chapter 6, it was the reign of Darius. Ezra chapter 7 is the reign of Artaxerxes, a Persian king. And the book can be outlined chronologically then as follows. In the first chapter of the book, things happen in the first year of King Ahasuerus in 483 B.C. In the second chapter of the book, we read about events that happen in the seventh year of King Ahasuerus. And in chapters 3 all the way to the end, we read about events that took place in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus. Now, the theme of this book, then, is that God is never absent from his people. Even when his name is not mentioned, or even when his name is not spoken or not allowed even in a culture, which seems to be the case in our culture today. But the Bible is very clear, and God shows us through the story of Esther that his quietness doesn't mean weakness. It doesn't mean unkindness. Now, he may be silent for a season, but he's never distant. He is invisible, yes, but never inactive. So thematically, we can divide the book as follows. Chapters 1 through 4, the author shows us the predicament of God's people. And from chapters 5 through 10, the preservation of God's people. So really, a two-point outline here for the entire book. The predicament of God's people, the preservation of God's people. And all of that to show us the providence of God or God acting behind the scenes. Now, for these reasons, church, the book of Esther is, along with every other book in the Bible, more relevant than today's newspaper. I keep saying this, tremendously relevant. For example, like the Persian Jews, we live in a pagan society. Like theirs, our culture has descended into so much sexual sin that government leaders have blurred the difference between good and evil. It's hard for people not to even tell the difference between good and evil in our culture, in our society. Well, that was the cultural setting that God used these people in order to preserve the Jewish race. So today and next week, we're going to see how God enlists human behavior, even poor decisions, to fulfill His purposes, which are perfect in every way, even when they include danger, which is what we're going to see here in the story. The danger of His people, they came close to being annihilated here, but that was part of God's plan. So instead of reading the entire chapter or the entire scene, we're going to savor this story here in small bites just because there's so much to learn. So, and and it, we, don't, we don't want to drink from a fire hose here. So we're going to do this in small parts. Let's get started. I want you to see divine providence in spite 
of people's unfaithfulness. In the introduction of the book, which we'll get to in a moment here, the author presents the conflict that catapults Esther to prominence, and he prepares us to meet her in the following chapter. While he also shows his audience that even though kings exercise free will, God turns their hearts to accomplish his purpose. This is not a new concept. God has hardened the heart of many people throughout history. For example, the heart of Pharaoh. In Exodus 9 verse 12, we're told that God hardened his heart in order to be glorified in that earthly king. In the future, you may remember this from our study of the book of Revelation, God will allow Satan to empower a man by the title of Antichrist to make war with the tribulation saints. That's in Revelation 13 verse 17. In All of that, we know, is because, according to Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. We have no doubt, therefore, church, who is pulling the strings here of human history. Humankind doesn't control its own destiny. We need to understand that you don't control your own destiny. God is in control. God knows the end from the beginning. He has determined your days before you were even born, although you are not left off the hook if you make wrong decisions. But the point is, God is in control here. Humankind doesn't control our own destiny. Thankfully, when we read the book of Revelation, for example, we know how everything ends. We, and, and we win at the end. Those of us who are born-again followers of Christ, that's a great comfort to know. But it's for our growth and maturity to see how God works everything for His own glory, for His own purposes. And all things work together, we're reminded by Paul, for the good of those who love the Lord. So keep this in mind as we study the book of Esther. I want you, first of all, to see divine providence even when a nation promotes perversion. Let me read to you verses 1 through 4 of the book of Esther, the first chapter. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all um, his provinces in attendance, the army, officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. So right from the beginning here, the author opens the scene describing a six-month-long party. This is a king who likes to party, as we will see here. And by the way, banquets abound here in the text. They are a a common feature in the story here. But the king of Persia, a guy by the name of Ahasuerus, which by the way is his title, as we will see here in a moment, gives a six-month-long party, which according to historians, allowed the king to garner support for the invasion of the Greek city-states to avenge the loss of his father Darius at the Battle of Marathon. Does that name ring a bell? The Battle of Marathon, the beginning of the Persian-Greco Wars. So this guy Darius had a tremendous defeat at this particular battle. And you remember the Greek soldier who ran all of those miles to give the news. So that's uh, Darius, the father of this guy Ahasuerus here. So he is now wanting to avenge the honor of his father. He gives, therefore, this banquet to garner support for an invasion now to the city-states. Now, we say Greece here, but at this time in history, there was no country of Greece. There was a conglomerate of city-states that would get together and unified for war, uh, especially against the Persian invaders. 
Now, this military campaign turned out to be a humiliating defeat for Ahasuerus. Now, this is all happening between chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Esther. Okay? So, the Persians captured Athens, but the Greek resistance was so fierce that Ahasuerus retreated, leaving behind his commander to die in the battlefield. Now, Western culture, church, we need to know this. The culture as we know it today, democracy and all of that, will not exist if this man had been successful. Now, why am I telling you all of this? I don't want to sound like a history professor. I just want you to see that God allowed the Greeks to eventually prevail so that a man by the name of Alexander the Great would institute the Greek language, Koine Greek, as the universal language One of the reasons the gospel circulated so easily, because of a unified language. Now, I also want you to see that Ahasuerus' ego-deflating loss, which the Bible doesn't tell us, that's in the books of history, his ego-deflating loss influenced his decision to choose a replacement queen, which is what we're going to read in chapter 2. But this author of the book of Esther, evidently a Persian Jew who lived through the events, clarifies which Ahasuerus he has in mind. Did you notice that in the beginning? He says, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia. The reason he says that, church, is because Ahasuerus was a title, which means king of kings, chief of rulers, or chief of monarchs. Uh, it's a title like Pharaoh or Caesar. And the reason why he had that title is because he would allow lower-ranking kings to keep their conquered territories as long as he would pay him tribute or face execution. So he was the chief of rulers. This man is also known in history by the Greek version of his name. You may have heard it, Xerxes. Now, not by accident, the theme of feasting abounds in this story. The drama of the Jewish beauty queen took place in Susa or Shushan, modern-day Iran, The location of the king's preferred royal palace, his winter residence, where he spent most of his time. So for six months, this Persian king displayed his wealth to his war council as a memorial of his greatness. He's trying to pump up support. Now, we know that in the Bible, banquets memorialize great acts of God. For example, the Passover feast. But when they are prompted by pride, they reveal the perversion of the human heart. Let me give you an example. In my native Brazil, every February, in the weeks leading up to Easter, the country celebrates what is known around the world as the Feast of the Flesh, also known as Carnival. The festival features some cultural aspects, very little cultural aspects, lots of sexual imagery, promiscuity, and very little clothing. So we see something similar here in these banquets. We will see something very similar in these banquets here. Sexual perversion, immorality, in a particular case here of this first banquet, the pride of this guy who thinks he owns the world. He thinks he's got, he has the title of king of kings. But by inspiring the author to include these initial details here of this super party, God prepares our hearts to understand that like the Persian Jews, we can experience his care in a culture that wants nothing to do with him. And that's the point of application for us. That's the relevance of this book. So I want you to rejoice in divine providence, not only when a nation promotes perversion, but also when a nation hails hedonism. So let's read verses 5 through 9 of the story. When these days were completed, when the six-month-long banquet were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. 
For all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace, there were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver and a mosaic of pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now again, right from the beginning we see here, this is a party crowd here. These people love to party. They love to throw banquets. Now, while only military officials attended the first banquet, everyone was invited for the second one here, so... Don't, don't get lost, don't get confused with the banquets. One banquet that lasted six months and now the grand finale that lasted seven days. So a week-long banquet that's lots of drinking, the Bible says. The difference is that in the second banquet, a, a week-long banquet, everybody was involved. And which means that after this king showed his generals that the empire had plenty of money for the campaign against the Greeks... He celebrated everything by inviting regular citizens to see the wealth of the kingdom, to drum up enthusiasm, popular enthusiasm. Now, an interesting detail here is that the author clarifies that no one was forced to drink according to Persian law. So that it was drinks all around, drinks available to everyone. You didn't have to drink, but hey, if you wanted to get intoxicated, the king's crew would take care of you. That's the plan here. So it's an endless supply of alcohol would ensure that everyone's desire for intoxication would be met. Kind of like the policy of decriminalizing hard drugs of the ancient world. Ahasuerus wanted to project the image of a generous king. It worked. Intoxicated people are easily manipulated. Now, the author may have attended this second banquet here because he describes minute details of the party. Clearly, the luxury of the place here impressed him. And he says that the couches were not gold-plated. They were made of solid gold. Uh, we could say that the king's court was the Las Vegas of antiquity here. And um, there, there's a detail that's important for us to know. When the text talks about the outer garden of the king, it's referring to a walled garden called, in the old Persian language, a para-daija. The name of this place, a walled garden with all of these riches and all of the luxury and all of the, the drinks and all the excesses you could get. No one was forcing you, but hey, if you want to... You can have whatever you want. All of that in the old Persian language was called paradaija. When the Greeks took over years later, they called these places paradeisos in Greek, from which we get the English word paradise. This is a worldly paradise. And this is a paradise that featured earthly riches in a sinful view of fun and pleasure and wealth. There is an infinitely better paradise that we know about. The one where Jesus promised to take the redeemed thief on the cross. Remember when Jesus told him, you will be with me today in paradise. Luke 23, verse 43. He was promising that thief on the cross that you will be with me in a heavenly paradise, in a place that's so much better than anything that the world can offer that there's not even any comparison. Because the true king of kings is there. You see, Ahasuerus is a fake king of kings. He's a counterfeit chief of monarchs. The true king of kings can offer real paradise. And Paul even visited the place, according to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 4. 
And interestingly, God did not allow him to write about it. Because in God's providence, John would write about what he saw in heaven in Revelation 4 when he heard from God, Come up here and I will show you the things that must take place. Now, when Jesus was being crucified, he promised to take the thief on the cross to the real paradise. But then the risen Lord writes through John to every believer these words in Revelation 2 verse 7, To him who overcomes, that's a promise from Christ. And by the way, that is a word to designate every believer. If you're a believer in Christ, you are an overcomer. Not because of everything you can accomplish, but because of everything that he already accomplished for you. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 2 verse 7. You see the difference here, church? By contrast, the paradise of men offers drinks all around, which causes death and destruction. For that reason, I much prefer, instead of drinks all around, I prefer to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, which will be, by the way, the feature of an eternal banquet, not a banquet limited by time, like this earthly, quote-unquote, king of kings can offer, but an eternal banquet that the true king of kings can offer. Conversely, the joys of this world are so short-lived only six months, seven days. You see those references of time there. By contrast, what God can offer to you as a follower of Christ is eternal. An eternal joy. Eternal feasting. Eternal fellowship. Eternal fun. Eternal friendships. Not anything like the world. Ahasuerus thought he was the chief of monarchs. But he died. And he remained in his grave. His kingdom fell to a more powerful empire. Remember, I told you this story. In fact, if you want more details of that, from a, obviously from a biblical perspective, read the book of Daniel. So eventually, that kingdom fell to a more powerful empire. And I already told you, Alexander the Great was known for conquering the known world after Persia here. But eventually, Greece fell to the Romans. And Rome eventually dissolved. What this tells us, church, is that every world's superpower has a life cycle. No matter how rich they are or how credible their empty promises of paradise on earth may sound. But again, on the other hand, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords rules over a kingdom that will never end. And if you are a believer in Christ, you are a part of that eternal reality. Peter confirms this when he writes 2 Peter 1 verse 11, that the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So if you are a Born again, follower of Jesus Christ, you already belong to the richest, wealthiest kingdom that there is, that will never end, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will come one day here and physically set up shop and establish that kingdom for a thousand years, and after a thousand years, the eternal state. This is the reason, church, we should stop looking for earthly paradises that can only offer short-term and conditional happiness. This is a short-term and conditional happiness. When the supply of alcohol would have ended, then these people would have been depressed. So the message here for us is this. Don't be impressed by the courts of Susa. Don't be impressed by the kingdoms of this world. And don't even desire paradise on earth. Because there's a ticket that grants you entrance into the heavenly courts. In the new Jerusalem, not in Susa, in the new Jerusalem. And God invites everyone to come. 
And those who respond in faith to the message of the gospel will sit at the table of the Lord. What an honor. There's no greater honor than that. Why should we keep looking for honor on this earth since God has already promised to us honor when we sit at the table of the Lord in the kingdom that will never end in the new Jerusalem that the Bible says comes down from heaven, will one day come down from heaven and be established on the earth. And by the way, that's a place that Jesus has been preparing, he promised his disciples, since John 14. Imagine that. Look at verse 9. We're told that Queen Vashti enters the scene by preparing her own banquet. You see the third banquet here. Wow, these people are party animals. She is throwing a party for the women. And Vashti held her party in the royal palace, which meant that all of the other women saw the lavishness and thought that they were in paradise. But in reality, they were objects in a culture that wanted to hide its depravity in purple linen. But deep inside, these women had nothing to celebrate. Only the true God, the true King of Kings, could hear their loneliness, their shame, and their humiliation. But they were about to witness His providence behind the scenes, which we will talk about next week. For now, church, that this is the introduction of the book and the first half of the first chapter here. I want you to know that God cares deeply about you, even if it seems He is nowhere to be found in your life. So whatever God is doing in your life, that you may feel like He is distant, I assure you from the authority of the Bible, specifically the book of Esther, He is not far. His silence doesn't mean absence. He loves you, and He will fulfill every one of His promises to you in His time. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org, or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.